For episode 68 of Flying Podcast, we're talking weight and balance. Often something that us pilots of light aircraft forget to do before every flight, but obviously uh, a very important uh, component of safe flight. Uh, I've seen a few videos recently on YouTube, uh, aircraft uh, crashing possibly because of uh, being incorrectly loaded or loads shifting in flight. Uh, so an interesting topic. Um, I found today's guest online, his company markets uh, weight and balance calculators, uh, but he does have a very interesting story to tell, uh, not just about uh, why weight and balance is so important or his company's products, but about his flying career too. So have a listen to Kerry Robbins of American Aeronautics. As usual, for my guests, my first question was about how he got into flying in the first place. Well, um, probably goes back to when I was a child. Um, I guess everybody's first flying experience is when they see an airplane and and all I ever wanted to do was fly. So uh, I remember when I was eight years old, uh, my family took a vacation out to California, out to Los Angeles area. And it was the first time I was on an airplane. I was fascinated. I had to sit by the window seat. Um, I watched every bit of everything uh, after the flight. This was in the uh, early 70s. So we were still able to go up to the front. And I got to go up to the cockpit and they showed me everything. And I was just amazed yeah. by everything. So I remember that. It's, it's something that's stuck in my head to this day. It's very vivid. And I knew at that point I wanted to fly. There was never um, ever any doubt of what I wanted to do growing up. I've always known many people that never knew exactly what they wanted to be or what they wanted to do. I always knew I wanted to be involved with airplanes. So, uh, of course, they wouldn't let me, being you know six years old, get my pilot's license <laughs> at that time. So I did uh, once I graduated high school. I was 18 years old. Um, I went to a local flying school, and at this, at this time, I was living in South Florida, around the Fort Lauderdale, Miami area. Uh, weather was beautiful all year round, so uh, I was able to go. I, I guess I could have done it in the winter up here, but it's always really cold. But uh, I went right to the airport, found a flight school, um, and the flight instructor took me out to a little Cessna 152, and I, I sat in that airplane just to look at it. And I was amazed. There was probably just a few instruments, uh, an old radio, but I thought this was the, the most amazing thing that I had ever seen, and I couldn't wait. Uh, and the intent was for me to come back the following week and do what they called a discovery flight. It was a 30-minute flight that gets you, you know, gets you involved in the airplane, lets you have a little hands-on to see if it's something you want to do. Uh, I showed up the following week. And my flight instructor said, you know, I know you want to fly. He set me up for, for an hour ground and then, you know, initial and then an hour in flight. And um, I took to it. I loved it. Loved everything about it. Uh, so that's really where I started when I was 18. And from there, uh, I continued on. I got my private pilot's license and eventually I got my commercial rating. Um, and about that time, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do to build my flight time. And so a lot of people were doing flight instructing in the area. It was a, you know, hard to get a job doing anything else because you needed to build time. And so I went and got my certified flight instructor rating. And so at this time now I'm, uh, I believe I'm 19 or just coming up on 20, and I have my certified flight instructor rating. And the flight school that I was working at gave me a job. Wow. Uh, and so I continued to do that. Uh, and it actually, I, I did it as a time builder, but it turned out that I really enjoyed teaching. 
uh, it was a lot of fun. It, all the stuff that I had learned, I loved passing on that information. Uh, I loved teaching people when they, they, the first time they soloed or the first time they, they landed the airplane by themselves and the look on their face. It was, it was very uh, enjoyable, but it was still something that I didn't really want to do as a living. However, at the time, too, I was attending uh, a community college. It was a two-year college uh, in South Florida, uh, working on getting a, um, an associate's degree, a two-year degree in aviation, um, and got really involved with the school as well, to the point where, um, before I even had my degree, they had me uh, substitute teaching classes uh, and teaching uh, continuing education classes in aviation for adults. I really enjoyed it. Um, but from that, I, I moved on, and, and I flight instructed for two years. Um, I got pretty much any flight instructor rating you could get. It's something I wanted to. I wanted to be able to teach in every type of aircraft that I was certified in. I got my multi-engine instructor and my multi-engine you know, uh, rating as well. Yep. Um, my instrument instructor, again, after I got my instrument rating, um, I went on to get rated where I could actually teach you know, uh, instructors how to be, or people, commercial pilots, how to be instructors. I was doing that at some point. Um, I did everything and got pretty much every rating I could at that point, except for my airline transport pilot. Uh, And the ATP pilot, of course, is something that's required uh, to fly, you know, jets uh, for a living, to fly uh, certain charter airline operations. You needed your ATP rating. And the only thing really at this point holding me back is that I wasn't 23 years old yet, and that was a requirement. Um, so I did that for two years, and then eventually started flying twin-engine aircraft, uh, Cessna 414s, um, Cessna 402s, and even Cessna um, oh, what was 303s. It was a Crusader. I got my multi-engine rating in, an air, in that airplane. Uh, for the charter department, that was attached as part of the flight school. Um, and I enjoyed that, uh, but it was kind of short-lived, because a friend of mine said, hey, I know of an air ambulance operator, and they're looking for co-pilots to fly in their Learjets. And I said, great, excellent, need more experience, I'm, I'm ready to move. Uh, I enjoyed flying, I, I, you know, I, and I think I was really good at it, too. Um, so I went and interviewed with somebody, and they said, you know, we don't pay very much, we pay very little. And I said, no problem. <laughs> I probably would have done it for free. Yeah. Um, and I got a job flying uh, on Learjets as a co-pilot did the basic training, and that opened up a totally different world. Uh, flying up to that point was, you know, a couple hours here and there, low level, um, hands-on all of the time involved, um, and the jets were different. Now I was actually going places, and I realized that um, traveling around the world was great. I got to experience all of these things and meet new people and see different parts of the world, um, but I always had this interest in learning uh, and experiencing and teaching, um, and that kind of made me move beyond aviation a little bit. But that—that's pretty much my 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 flying experience. Okay, how long did you fly commercially for? Um, I flew. I should say I got paid for flying from 1987 to late 1998, almost into 1999. And what made you stop flying commercially? Well, it's it's interesting. Um, one of my jobs that I had taken, um, I had moved back to the Chicago area, which is where I originally grew up. Uh, my family had moved to South Florida when I was 16 years old. Uh, but I, I came back to Chicago. I still had family up here and started working for a charter department uh, 
for out of an airport north of Chicago. And um, one of my flights, I was flying with a part-time pilot. Uh, he came along on the flight and he says, hey, um, you know, the weight and balance calculators you use. And I said, oh, yeah, I've been using them for years, even at other operators that I worked at. He said, well, I invented that. It's my company. And we were in flight, and I was. It was almost a famous item. It's something that everybody uses. All the charter operators used. I used it for every company I'd ever worked at. It was always there, um, and we became real good friends. And um, several years after that, so probably 1997, 1996, 1997, uh, I was out on a flight, and uh, I was. You know, we were waiting. We were we were overnighting in some city. And my co-pilot uh, injured his back, and he really couldn't fly anymore, so we needed another pilot. Uh, this gentleman, uh, his name is Dan Scharf, by the way, and I, I pretty much owe everything to him, and you'll, you'll soon hear why. Uh, he was a uh, part-time pilot for this company still. They flew him out the day before we had to leave, and um, I was sitting eating dinner with him. And he said, you know, uh, I'm getting older, and none of my kids really want to do anything with this business. Um, what do you think? Is it something you might be interested in? And again, flying airplanes, it's everything I've always wanted to be around. And I was not a fan of being gone all the time. I, w I was gone a lot. Um, and I preferred to be home. I preferred to be with a family. And I had so many hobbies and so many interests, um, computers being one of them. And at the time, um, laptops really didn't exist. They were some, but they were clunky. They were huge. And you couldn't just bring your desktop computer. They didn't have flat screens at all. You'd, you'd be bringing this big CRT yeah. with you. So, um, you know, those types of things I missed. I spent a lot of time in hotels. Um, so he, and I jumped at the chance and said, absolutely. I have no idea, what, you know, how to do it. You know, he said, I'll teach you. Um, and that's what he did. It took about a year. Um, I learned some other things just to prepare me with how it would be, you know, dealing with these things. You know, try try tried to increase my knowledge of weight and balance, um, tried to increase my knowledge of the programs that we'd be using to create the systems, essentially computer CAD drawing, you know, uh, programs. Um, and after about a year, um, I cut the cord with flying full-time and started working with uh, Dan for, uh, it was about five years, and he taught me everything and um, um, how to create the systems that he did. And it was not a computer program, it's just a little like a protractor or aluminum drawing plotter on a piece of graph, and it was intrigued me. But he taught me how to do that. Eventually, I went on to design software versions of our products, um, and then eventually bought him, uh, bought the company, and uh, been running it for almost 10 years now. Brilliant. Purely a chance meeting with the guy. It was. It was. And it seems like uh, uh, I've been blessed with that, um, you know, being able to get the jobs that I have, flight instructing. I, I never ever was looking hard to find a job and I know it was always a very difficult uh, environment. Uh, when I was getting my pilot's ratings in South Florida, uh, two very large airlines were around at the time, Eastern Airlines and Pan Am, and they were both based out of Miami and, and during that period they both went out of business uh, and it was a little depressing, a little frustrating, but I never had a problem. There was always that next job. I always worked really, really hard at the one I was at and it always prepared me for the next one. Um, and so just knowing who I knew and preparing myself the way I did, it just seems to have fallen into place. I've been very lucky with uh, meeting the people that I've met in this business. 
Did you miss flying commercially? Obviously, you love flying, so it must have been a, a bit of a wrench to leave it behind. But as you say, it's probably not quite as exotic as uh, as many people think it is, is it, flying all these different hours? Right. So, I, you know, one thing that I did that I've always regretted is that with uh, regular airplane ratings, you can always get recurrent. So I, I haven't flown in quite some time, but I know I can always go back, do basic training, do a, a flight review, um, have a sign-off from an instructor, and be able to go fly again. Uh, maybe limited, maybe not my instrument, maybe not commercially, but I could always do that. With my flight instructing, that I can't do because I've let all my flight instructor certificates lapse. Really, to get them back, I'd have to do everything again. Um, and that's not something I'm prepared to do, but that's really what I miss the most. I would love to be able, maybe part-time, to be able to flight instruct. Um, flying professionally, I, that I really don't miss. Um, I got used to the aircraft, uh, which is how it should be. So I, I I flew a lot more than I drove a car, um, and I was on call. It was a very difficult life, and I wanted a family. It was something I wanted strongly, and it wasn't going to happen being gone all the time. Um, so I really don't miss the flying. I miss being around pilots and discussing pilot things. Um, you know, it, it's very hard to have these conversations with. Um, just people that are not involved in aviation, yep. just as I guess it would not be easy for me to talk about surgery <laughs> with doctors. <laughs> yeah. um, but the flying itself, I really, I don't miss the flying. Um, I, again, I was very used to the airplane. I flew more than I drove a car. Um, I got to see a lot of the world in a very short amount of time, uh, but never got to experience as I would if I took vacation. So I still do that. I still travel and still experience these things. Um, and you know, it, it's what I really would love to do is fly all these different airplanes a little bit instead of flying <laughs> one airplane, 4,000 hours yeah. to fly one airplane an hour uh, and, and all different types of airplanes and, and experience the different types of airplanes that I always loved. Um, I got to experience something as small as a Cessna 152. I actually got to fly in a, in a Stearman once. That was great. Wow. Um, I don't think I would have liked to do it for 2,000 hours, but I really enjoyed yeah. it. Yeah. Um, the jets that I flew, the diff I, I'm type rated in several different jets, and they all had their experiences that I really enjoyed. And it's just that initial feeling, not necessarily a rush, but just the ability to experience what it has to offer, I guess, is kind of what I miss. But um, it's not really something – I'm not being held back from doing that. Um, from anything other than that business is quite busy and yeah. I'm occupied by other things. Uh, so before we start um, talking about your company and what uh, you're doing with Weight and Balance, just uh, give us a bit of a run through um, why Weight and Balance is so important. Sure. Well, uh, Weight and Balance is important for a couple reasons. Um, and one is that it's one of the first things that you ever learn when you get your pilot's license that is technical. That along with, you know, how do you figure out how much runway you need for takeoff and landing? Weight and balance is taught right from the beginning. Uh, any aircraft that's created uh, has certain limitations that it has to abide by. And one of those is, is it balanced properly? If uh, weight is too far forward distributed or too far aft distributed in the aircraft, um, bad things can happen. Uh, if the aircraft is overweight, again, bad things can happen. So just by the actual design of the aircraft, uh, making sure that the airplane's loaded properly ensures safety. You know, outside of centered gravity or weight limits can really cause some problems, and it has in the past. It's something that uh, us GA pilots, I, I think, probably uh, leave 
far too often and, and forget to do just because we, we think we fly with the same loading, the same two people and, and so much fuel. Sure. Sure. And it's, it, it's something that I hear all the time that, oh, I'm, I'm not a charlotte pilot or I'm just fly for myself. I don't need to do the weight and balance. And I think that's a misconception. I think if you look through any manual, pilot operating handbook or an aircraft flight manual, it says specifically that you have to maintain center gravity and weight limits within the, the required certified limitations of the aircraft. So whether it says to do that in regulations or not, to be safe in flight, you have to ensure that. So how can you do that without actually performing a weight and balance computation? But you're right. If you, It is the same people. You have the same two people, the same fuel, and you're familiar, and it's always within. So, yeah, I'd say that counts for insuring. But um, a lot of people fly, and they fly variable loads. Uh, they fly different um, baggage, different people, different fuel configurations or capacities. Um, the only way to really ensure that you're within limitations is that you do a computation. And I hear often, my airplane, you can never get out of weight and balance. And I got to tell you, I know this from doing thousands of different com- you know, computational systems that um, that's not true for most airplanes. Yeah. I guess over the years, you've become a bit of a, an expert in weight and balance. And I, I believe you've actually been called on to give evidence in court cases over in, in America there. I have. I have. Um, it's unfortunate some of these things have happened. Uh, there was one particular accident that happened uh, in the northeast uh, of the U.S. Uh, I think it's, boy, it's uh, three, four years maybe. Um, now, this wasn't an accidental problem. This is something that was caused by the flight crew intentionally, uh, at least as this is what was brought up in the court and this is what was found to be true, that they intentionally falsified records. They, they had a full airplane full of people. They had full fuel, uh, and it caused the center of gravity limits to be far forward of the certified limits to a point where uh, they just couldn't rotate the airplane. They pulled back as hard as they could on the control column. It never lifted off the ground, eventually running off the end of the runway, I believe into a hangar or a building, um, really hurting some people, destroying the aircraft. Um, And I think had they known that this would happen – their intentions still being being wrong, I don't think anybody would have put themselves into that type of dangerous situation knowing that there's a potential of dying because of it. Yeah. Do you think this is a pressure from, from management saying, well, just load up and go? Sure, sure. You know, and I've worked for operators like that. Um, I've been um, lucky enough that I've never at, at the point where I was learning how to fly, money was not an issue, and that's probably one of the reasons I was able to start flying uh, jets as early as I, I was able to. Um, I didn't need the money to solely live by. I had other means. Uh, I, lived, I had my family support. I had money that I had saved from flight instructing, and I did okay as a flight instructor. Um, but I've worked for plenty of people where there's pressure to, to get this flight done. Uh, it's money. Um, you know, the, the weather is stopping us. They're losing money. If they can't get from point A to B nonstop, they're losing money if they have to stop for fuel. Uh, I've I've felt that pressure, and I've quit my share of jobs because of it. I guess with the older style aircraft that the weight and balance calculation was fairly straightforward with where people were sitting and whether you've got so much fuel in the tanks and you only had maybe a couple of tanks to, to think about, uh, is it the case now uh, with uh, larger aircraft that the the calculation is getting much more complex? Yeah, and it differs. Uh, so say a, uh, a four-seat airplane, let's use a, a Cessna 172, for instance, um, it's pretty basic. Yeah. Uh, you have 
you know, of course, center gravity and weight limitations, just like you would for any airplane. But you have, um, you know, two rows of occupants, baggage, um, and you have the fuel. And this is important. The fuel, they give you one center of gravity arm for the fuel. Yeah. The larger the airplanes, the more positions you have, the more complex the fuel system is. And when you start having, especially aircraft with swept wings, the fuel is not at one arm. It's at a variable um, point depending on the volume. Yeah. And then you start getting into some airplanes that have multiple fuel tanks and you have these automatic fuel scheduling systems and center gravity and flight can go all over the place. And, and even the really large airplanes, um, you know, Airbus in particular has a very unique system. I think it's the A330. Um, I know off the top of my head they have a fuel tank in the horizontal stabilizer they call it a trim tank. And they have a computer that actually shifts fuel back and forth to maintain an optimal CG. It's, it's fascinating wow. uh, where the technology has taken us. But it still comes down to that. The weight and balance for uh, a 747 or an A380 is exactly the same math that you use for a Cessna 172. It's weight times arm equals moment. It's exactly the same thing. How do planes get on where it's uh, a manual fuel transfer system, let's say? How, how on earth do you calculate it then? Or is it just uh, you know when you get down to a certain volume of fuel, you need to pump some from one tank to the other? Right, and that's something you learn in training. Um, I've flown lots of Learjets. And the early Lears, the Lear 20 series and 30 series, uh, even the 55, um, had several different fuel tanks. Uh, there was the wing and usually a, a fuselage tank. Uh, Lear 55, I flew, actually had two different fuselage tanks. And you had to shift fuel from one to the next to the wings. So it's complex, but it's something you learn in flight training. Okay. And fuel management is really the specific name for it. Um, we knew that when we got to a specific volume in the wings, while well, we had to move fuel from a fuselage tank to the wings. That, that's something you learn. It, it's uh, nice to have automated systems, um, but manual systems can still work you know, appropriately. Okay. Uh, let's move on to the, uh, the company that you uh, bought out. Um, and you've mentioned that they produced the uh, aluminum plotter. Yes. Um, where did you go from there? Well, um, I'd like to step back real quick and just, if I can, talk about the plotter real quick because I think it's really important sure. to where I've taken it. Um, so the gentleman's name is Dan Scharf. And he um, is a pilot or, or is a retired pilot. Uh, by training, he is a um, aerospace engineer and uh, did a lot of work uh, in aerospace engineering, uh, but was a pilot as well. And from the story that I've been told, uh, he was with some people flying for a company. And weight and balance, again, we say weight times arm equals moment. And it sounds really straightforward, but as we know, these moment numbers can be really high. And there's a lot of them, and there's a lot of common errors that you see in, in paperwork. A lot of times they'll take values and they'll divide them out uh, to make them shorter. And because of this, it's really easy to make a mistake when doing a weight and balance with pencil and paper or even a hand calculator or a spreadsheet. It's very easy to make mistakes, and more often not, than not, you do. Um, and I believe the way he told me the story, someone said, hey, can you do something better? And he thought about it. And... Something like this kind of existed. The military used a variation of it. Uh, Piper Aircraft did at one point, um, and he decided to give it a try, and he created one. And what he came up with was a graph that we call a nomograph. And it's really just a, a graph that shows the center gravity and weight limits. Uh, it's a moment envelope. And he created this aluminum plotter, this tool that has rulers or scales that represent the different loading positions, so passengers, baggage, fuel, on this aluminum plotter. And it's a bunch of little rulers just put together in one device. 
and you use it, you draw on a piece of paper. I believe this was the late 70s, and he made it out of brass, and he hand-drew these. Uh, computers really didn't exist, so he did these on thin you know, vellum paper and on a light table with a ruler and an, used a, a slide rule. Wow. Um, and after a while, other people were asking him, hey, can you do one for my airplane? And he saw an opportunity, and so he created the business in 1981, and before you knew it, <laughs> it uh, – and, and Excuse the pun. It really took off. It uh, it became extremely popular. Uh, by the time I started using it, I just expected when I went to a new company that they would have it, and they always did. Yep. Uh, this is before I knew him. Um, and it's now to a point where when I st- started working with him in the late 90s, uh, that it was just a, a staple item in aviation, in general aviation anyway. So smaller airplanes, corporate charter airplanes, everybody had it. Uh, so I got involved with a company that was really well established, yep. um, and I enjoyed it. But then the the internet happened, and I was always into computers. So I, I had made myself a web page, I think back before anybody had web pages. Yep. And I sat with them. I said, you know, uh, I think we're going to miss an opportunity if we don't do something like this online, because everybody was doing everything online. Um, and so I took the concept of of the plotter and the graph which was really the strong part of this product. It was all visual. You didn't have to do any mathematics. You didn't have to know anything. If you were outside of center of gravity limits, you can see it, and all you had to do was move the plotter around, add weight in a different spot. You, you didn't have to do The math was all done for you. So I said, well, I want to create an online version, and I did. Uh, I did it in a, in a language called Java, which is kind of getting a bad rap uh, lately, probably for good reason, uh, for security reasons. Yeah. Um, but I created this app online, and it did really well. And I, the fascinating thing is I said, well, I want to make this just like our plotter and graph, and I did. did exactly the same visual representation, uh, and I wanted it to be as simple to use. And then uh, a few years ago, or maybe not even that long ago, Apple came out with the iPad, and that kind of changed things a lot. I had always played around with the handheld devices. Uh, the, the online version, I should back up, the online version eventually I created as a standalone product to run on laptops uh, and then pen tablets that were running you know, Windows. Yep. There are pen tablets like Fujitsu's, things that people were using in the cockpit, but they were heavy and bulky. Uh, I remember the first Palm Pilot I tried creating a program, and it just looked terrible, and it was really hard to put on these little devices. Yeah. Uh, the iPad came around. I said, wow, this is really... This is fascinating. This this might work. And um, then I one day I got a call and said, "Do you make something for the iPad?" I said, "No." <clears throat> Excuse me. I said, "No, I don't. I don't. Um, I can look at it." And then the next day I got a call, and this went on. Now every day I'd get a call, not just one, two, three, four, then ten, yeah. then fifteen calls a day. Um, and I realized when people started asking me now, "Do you have a product for the iPad?" My answer now was, "We're working on it." And uh, so we started working on it, and it was a little over a year uh, of doing it, but we created a system that works extremely well. It still keeps true to the idea and the representation of how the plotter and graph worked, uh, and it has done extremely well. We've been doing it uh, a a little over a year and a half, uh, and it has done extremely well. The iPad has definitely made a huge impact. I don't know any pilots that don't have iPads. <laughs> Everybody's using them and using um, charting and weather. Uh, the airlines are using them. All the corporate pilots are using them. 
And so now, not only are we able to handle with plotters and graphs and, and the little desktop or online software, but we're able to, um, you know, give it on the iPad as well. Yeah. And it, we're, we're really proud of it. What was the plotter's brand name? Uh, there never really was a plotter, uh, or there was never really a brand name. Um, so it was Dan just the, went, the American Aeronautics Plotter? Yeah, people call it American Aeronautics, but this is another little fascinating story. Uh, he needed a 1-800 number. He wanted a toll-free number. Yeah. And so he had a list of, of numbers he could choose from, but he wanted one that he could apply a name to. Um, and so he printed something out, being the engineer he did, he created a printout of all the different possibility and mix, mix, uh, mixes and matches of different letters that with numbers on the telephone. And he came up with eventually fly in CG, F-L-Y-I-N-C-G. And that came as eight, became his 800 number. Yeah. When I started working with him, I said, you know, that would make a great website address. Because at this point, he did have a website. It's something that a friend of his put together, and it was on America Online or AOL. Yeah. Um, and so I bought the domain. And, and I learned, it turns out, a lot of people don't even know the, the name of the company is American Aeronautics. People know us as Fly in CG. Right. Um, and so when people think of the plotter, they always call it, do you make, are you the ones that make the Fly in CG plotter? Are you the ones that make the Fly in CG app? And we eventually did brand the app. But most people just know us as uh, Fly in CG. Okay. Uh, what aircraft types uh, are your products suitable for? We make products for every single aircraft that flies. Uh, the plotter, of course, the plotter and graph method, since it's been around for over 30 years, we've probably made them for most airplanes. Um, um, even airplanes that you probably have never heard of, we've done them for. Um, and we continue to do that with the software. And so if you bring us an airplane and you want it made, uh, we can create it for your aircraft. We've probably already done one for your type of aircraft, but we can make it for anything, even if we have to do it from scratch. Uh, but it's, it's not really cost-effective for very small light singles, is it? No, that's true. Um, you know, the one thing that's been a little bit hard for me to deal with, but it's an unfortunate uh, incident of this, is that to create software is expensive, and to create quality and good software is expensive. Uh, it requires, you know, talented people. It requires marketing. It requires a lot more than we have to give for the aluminum plotter and graph. That itself is the material cost, design, uh, we make everything in-house, but it's essentially, um, you know, metal and paper. So we're able to offer that for a lot less. Software is not really the case. Uh, the iPad app, which we actually customize for every aircraft, we do all of the programming, um, is expensive. It's uh, It can vary anywhere from, you know, $300 to $700 for an aircraft from light to corporate. Um, and again, it's something that we do customize. The plotter and the graph can vary anywhere between $70 and same price, $900 to $1,000. It depends on the customization we do. Um, but being the fact that the software is what it is, I, I can't sell it for what I do for the plotter and graph. I really wish I could. But we do offer a lot of value for that. We offer who we are as a company and the support that we do. And if you ask any of our clients, I think that they will um, tell you that we are uh, an extremely good company, we are good people, um, and that our product is worth every penny. Um, and even for the plotter and graph, every, it's worth every penny. Um, most, the, most of your sales are to what, to corporate jet companies? Yeah, so the iPad is geared more towards the corporate type of aircraft. Now, we have done smaller aircraft. People do buy it for, you know, we've done some Malibus, I've done some Beach Barons. 
Uh, I think I even did a, uh, a Beach G36 Bonanza. So, uh, but for the most part, Gulfstreams, Learjets, Bombardiers, Challengers, um, and we even go higher than that. We do the Boeings. Um, just did a corporate configured Airbus um, for the iPad app. Um, we also, not really for the iPad yet, but we do other software and we handle a lot of the large transport. But the customization is so great that we're not really quite at that point with the iPad. We're, we're working there and we'll be able to do any bit of, of interface customization at some point. And when you say you produce the software for each specific aircraft, you don't mean aircraft type, you mean actual serial number, individual aircraft. Exactly. So, um, any number of days I might work on the same type of aircraft. Uh, uh, just yesterday, I worked on three different Gulfstream G450 aircraft. Different owners, different operators, um, same type of aircraft, but different serial numbers. I actually create it so it's specific to that serial number to the point that even the starting weight, uh, and in the jets, we use what's called a corrected empty weight. It's your basic weight plus all of your operational items, galley, charts, manuals, rafts, anything that would be on top of it. We maintain that. We manage that. Um, and one of the reasons I find that people that do weight and balances longhand do make a lot of errors. Uh, there are other programs out there. There are cheap programs out there. Um, they usually require the user to input all the data. And there's a really good chance that that data is input incorrectly. Um, and the majority of these programs, even the ones that cost a couple dollars, typically have some type of disclaimer in their license agreement that it's it's not for flight, that it's for reference. You should still look at the aircraft manuals. We back up our product 100%. We guarantee that it's right on. We test it. We make sure it's aircraft specific. And if there's any change, a reway or an equipment change in that aircraft, our client just contacts us and we do the update. We do the amendment, um, which is very advantageous because more often than not, I get documentation from the operators that has errors in it. So we're, we're able to correct that, and that's really important. Uh, when it comes to any aircraft, but really commercial flying, your documentation has to be has to be legal. Why is it that individual aircraft vary so much amongst the same model type? Right. So it really it depends on the type of aircraft, but um, there are things that are specific to each model, uh, each make and model, fuel system, uh, weights of the aircraft. Where, but really, but where it really differs is in the loading of the aircraft, the interior, yeah. especially when you get to Gulfstream aircraft or any any larger corporate aircraft, even some of the smaller corporate aircraft, there are multiple configurations and some of these configurations are customized. So you'll have 50 of the same type of aircraft and none of the interiors are the same. Uh. And the weight and balance is all about the distance of the weight from the datum, the, the horizontal arm across that, that, that datum line. So um, we have to make it customized. We get the documentation for each aircraft, and we program each seating position, uh, as well as there might be the same type of aircraft, and there's different certification for different countries. So an aircraft that's certified in, say, the U.S. might have specific center of gravity limits. You take that over to uh, European operations, and the certification might have different center of gravity limits. That happens a lot as well. Right. And over the years, then, I guess you've built up a pretty large library of aircraft data? We do. Um, I believe we probably have the largest historical records of, of aircraft weight and balance around uh, because we've been gathering this for almost 34 years. And um, it gives us a good idea of 
you know, what happens to the weight and the CG of aircraft as time goes on. Uh, very often we have operators that have aircraft that we may have had data on from years before, um, and they may be missing data. So we do catalog quite a bit. And all of the data points, as you say, are pre-entered. And how does that help um, a, a pilot operator? So it, it kind of differs. So if you are just flying yourself, you have your own airplane, or you rent an airplane and you go out on the weekend, you probably have plenty of time to do a weight and balance. And you probably have plenty of time to make mistakes or figure it out. More often than not, you probably will never do a weight and balance because it's something that you learned for your private or commercial. And um, nobody ever goes over that again. But it's still simpler. It's it, it, you're allowed to do that over amount of time. Your passengers won't yell at you if you're an hour late, yeah. necessarily. But when you're flying um, as a business, time is everything. People that are chartering aircraft, or people that own their own jet aircraft, or aircraft in general, um, do that because they need it as a way of getting from one place to another, and are not going to be willing to sit and wait while you do a weight and balance on a spreadsheet or even paper and pencil if you're that you know brave. So one of the things that we add is is extreme convenience. So when an operator adds a new aircraft onto their um, charter certificate, weight and balance is not necessarily something that they want to be tasked with. It's just excessive overhead, and somebody might have to learn it, have to figure something out. We are a company that allows us to just say, okay, not a problem. That's the airplane. We'll have a system for you in a day. Um, not only that, will we get give it to you in a timely fashion? We're going to give you the ability to do a weight and balance quickly and accurately. Uh, we'll give you the ability to meet regulations of whatever your governing agency is uh, for documentation purposes. Uh, we give you the, the peace of mind that the data is correct, that there won't be any errors because everything is pre-programmed. The only thing that you have to enter is the weight of the you know, passenger's baggage or fuel quantity at takeoff and landing. So all those variables of boy, i got to do this longhand, and I don't know if these points are right, and I'm looking at the aircraft manuals and referencing. Uh, that's always a backup. Every operator has the ability to do that, but nobody ever wants to because it's just too difficult and too time-consuming. Yeah. Um, and so we just make that extremely easy. So thinking of the iPad version, does it give you a graphical representation of the, the inside of your aircraft? It does. Uh, the iPad versions, it's separated into three sections uh, where you do the calculation. One is the graph. And that's the great part, the, where you can see and watch the math. It's drawn on there, just like our plotters would draw uh, on, the, on our uh, paper graph. It's what we call a vector. So you see that entire loading, and you see how it is drawn horizontally for the center of gravity shift as well as vertically for the weight. And many aircraft, the center of gravity limits vary depending on weight. If there's any violation, if they're outside of those CG limits, they turn red. It gives you all visual indications. Again, you don't have to do any math. In fact, you don't have to do anything, but if you see red, say, okay, well, I have to move. This occupant can't sit in the front seat. I'll have to move them to one of the rear seats. And then we do have a diagram of the interior, uh, and we number the seats. And that's important because you need to know where geographically in the aircraft you're putting your load. Yeah. And then, of course, the other thing is where you actually enter the, the weight. And so we have to label that as well. So if you see PACS 1, well, that, that's equivalent to seat one in the diagram. So everything, again, visual. Everything is there for you. There's no math at all to do. Do you use a, a standard, like a standard of human weight? Or, or is, it, yeah. is it actually weight of the person? Sure. That really depends. It depends on your type of operation and where you are in the world and, and what you're doing. So um, 
in the easiest thing, if you had your own airplane or you had a light twin, you're going to be using actual weights. Um, most governing agencies require that you use actual weights. When you start getting into the larger aircraft or the corporate aircraft, it really depends on how you're regulated and what your laws are. Um, I do know that uh, for the countries that I, do, that I do it for, there are standard averages used, but it depends. It really depends. The, the United States, say, has 189 pounds for an average winter weight uh, passenger for aircraft that don't have carry-on bags. Uh, or a carry-on baggage program, something that is actually trained. It's 195 pounds winter standard average weight for aircraft that do have carry-on bags. Uh, Europe, it's a little different. Usually, I think it, the equivalent is about 187 pounds. I think it's 85 or 86 kilos. Uh, operations in Asia, again, vary. And sometimes it even varies down to the point of what the operators approve to do. Uh, did you say that your software helps an operator comply with legislation and uh, if you did how does it do that for operators that are required to document their weight and balance and i think every place in the world that somebody is flying for hire requires that type of type of documentation so first things first it gives us a graphical representation of how the center of gravity is loaded within the center of gravity envelope and that's important it's not just a number saying here's our takeoff weight and cg here's our landing weight and cg it's all the points in between there are many aircraft that have variable fuel configurations that can cause center gravities to shift outside of center gravity limits in flight. Um, and so our product shows that, helps you comply there. It also meets load manifest requirements of almost every country. If not, we customize it to. And that are other things like departure and destination points, number of passengers on board, um, Max allowable takeoff gross weights, typically that's a performance limited weight, not your structural limited weight. It's got a place to even sign your name. And it gives you the ability to save, print, or even send that weight and balance, a graphical picture of it, um, right from the email app uh, in the iPad, right to the operator. Uh, so that it helps there. On top of the fact that it does the weight and balance and meets the requirement of the manufacturer. Other than that, does your, does your software need access to the internet? The iPad app does not. Uh, it does initially for the first download. It does for any updates. And, of course, if you want to email uh, or save your uh, load manifest to something that's connected to the Internet, you sure, will. Sure. But to actually perform it, we're not uploading data. We spent a lot of time in figuring out a way to do this, to be able to download very specific data for every aircraft and arrange the user interface to handle every aircraft in one application. It's not an easy thing to do. Uh, the iPad's a very closed system. Apple has very, very strong limitations on what we as programmers can do. Um, we cannot create a program and then create another little program later to download and plug into that program, which is unfortunate because that's a, one of the strong points of the programming language that it uses, which is called Objective-C. But we figured out a way to, to handle this without dealing with that type of programming limitation. We were extremely creative. It took us some time, but we're really proud of the technology that we came up with. Great stuff. Uh, if somebody wanted to find out more about your products, where would they go online? Sure. Our website is the best place. It's www.flyincg.com. Uh, they can also call us at our 800 number, FlyInCG. Unfortunately, it's only in the U.S. Yep. Outside of the country, they can call us at a regular number, 
which is uh, area code 847-459-5801. All of this information is on our website. They can always email me directly, call me. They can even Skype me directly, and I'd be more than happy to talk with them about their needs, about what they want to do, um, whether it's the plotter and graph, an online version, or the iPad. We have a real simple product to help. Um, our, in fact, our motto is simple solutions to complex problems, and that's really that's really what we, we strive for. Uh, is there a demo version that people could have a look at? Sure. Uh, the For the iPad app, the app is available on the App Store for free. It doesn't cost anything to download. Um, it comes with a couple of sample aircraft, but the app itself is fully functional, so you can see how it works. Um, we would customize it for your specific aircraft. Unfortunately, we couldn't put every aircraft on the demo. It would be pretty large. Um, But they can try it out anytime. And if there's something very specific that they would like to see, just contact me, and I'd I'd be more than happy to set something up for them. It was great to chat with Kerry about his career, weight and balance, and his company, American Aeronautics. But as ever with my guests, we continue chatting about our flying experiences. Uh, I remembered that Kerry had mentioned uh, that he'd been a flying instructor in or near a school which uh, may or may not have been mentioned in one of my earlier podcasts about learning to fly in the US. So our discussion about aviating continued. You were involved in a flying school, I think, featured on one of my earlier podcasts. Is that the case? I don't know, because you didn't name names. No, no, no. I, well, <laughs> I don't want to get sued by <laughs> Right. But um, I did, in fact, you know, flight instruct in South Florida. Yep. And um, I agreed with everything. I mean, there was we, – we had many, many international students come because the weather was good all year round. Oh, yeah. Um, we – I some of the things that were said, like, you don't – I think one gentleman said he was told, yeah, don't worry about the rudder. That I, I never <laughs> heard of anything like that. <laughs> I, could, I couldn't even imagine flying without using the rudder. But there were – you're supposed we to use the rudder? These. Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> I, actually, when I got into the jets, we used them for takeoff and landing. Otherwise, the yaw damper was on right away. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the uh, there was another school, and I'll say the name. It's American Flyers, and they're still around to this day. And they did have these courses where you can go and get your instrument rating in two weeks or whatever it was. Uh, we weren't that type of school. Um, but I did have a lot of students, and um, to the point where I was – I think I flew in two years – close to like 18 or 1900 hours. It was a lot of flying time. Um, but it's mostly as, of course, as an instructor. So it wasn't as much hands-on, but, um, eight in the morning I got there and I worked almost until the sun went down at night. Uh, there was no real duty time restrictions on flight instructors at that time. I still don't know if there are. Um, it was a great way to, to build flight time. Um, but unfortunately, you know, people, <laughs> you know, put their careers in, in flight schools where there are 18 or, you know, I was just about 20 at the time. And yeah. I think I told you this, I would never go and get a flight, you know, get something from a 20 year old necessarily. <laughs> I, I don't want to rule it out, but uh, I would probably look for somebody that was an experienced flight instructor, yeah. unfortunately. It's, uh, I bet those flying schools are still using the same 152s, aren't they? Um, yeah, you know, I, it was a great, great airplane. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, it was a lot of fun and you, you couldn't beat for cost. I, I looked at how much it costs to get, go up, do flight training now. And when I started flying in 80, 1985, it was, I think I paid $30 an hour Jeez. for the airplane. <laughs> yeah. Which I don't think you could ever do that anymore. No, I, I did my, uh, we do a two year renewal here. Like you have your biennial. Right. And uh, that cost me over two hundred pounds, so wow. you get three hundred dollars north, right? 
excruciating. It's yeah, and and it's funny because out of all my flying, it's either been a biennial flight review, so you do it every two years, or at one point it, you, they made it here in the states annually, so you had to do it every year. Um, but from the time I started flying to the time I stopped, I never did one of those flight reviews because I was always flying for a living, and I had to do check rides depending whether I was a co-pilot or not, either 12 months or when I was pilot in command on the jets. Every six months, I was in the simulator. Um, so I've never done one of those flight reviews, and that's really the thing holding me back. Um, and I keep saying I'll do it in the summer because I don't want to do it in the winter. It's just too cold to be out there. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So, I, I tell you, it's a joy flying in Florida. That's the only place I've flown outside of this country. But it's right. uh, it is a joy, and it's it's so nice to be treated properly at, at an airfield. And when you land, and somebody comes out and says, "Follow me," and so would you like filling up with gas? I say, "Oh yeah, yeah." Then now, do you want to lift around to the you know to the uh, departure terminal? There's a restaurant there, and we'll come and pick you up later. Think, what? <laughs> you really, you don't get that in Europe. I've I've always found I haven't done that much flying in Europe. Uh, in the UK, I've flown into Luton uh, a few times, and they always treated us well, and into you know Switzerland and France. But um, I didn't, so it's, you don't get that type of treatment. If you're flying commercially, you probably do, and you you know you've got a um, somebody handling you. But if you're flying GA, right? No. Yeah, my first cross country flight was to a, a grass strip, and um, they were, we had to, this is my solo cross country, and you had to have proof that you were there, and I had to look everywhere to find somebody to sign my logbook saying that I was there. Yeah. <laughs> it was, uh, it took me almost an hour to find somebody. So did you get over to, to Europe very often? Um, not too often. Cause the airplanes that I flew actually didn't do so well. We, uh, usually had to carry multiple flight crews and we had to make stops. The longest flight to Europe I did was to, um, Athens from Fort Lauderdale. And that was, well, we stopped. At, this was an air ambulance flight. We were taking somebody back. So we stopped in Pennsylvania. We stopped in Goose Bay, Newfoundland. We stopped in Keflavik, Iceland. We stopped in Brussels, Belgium. And then we went on to Athens, and it was really, really long. Um, the last flight I did in the Lear 35 to Europe was to, the, as far as we got, was Geneva. Uh, but we flew around out there. So we were Geneva, Nantes, France, and, and Luton in the UK. Um, but I, strangely, I don't think Athens was the furthest. We flew a flight from Fort Lauderdale to um, Buenos Aires, Argentina. I think it was a little bit longer than the flight was to Athens, but it was just straight. <laughs> yeah. Are you like me when you look down and the actual country that you see below you actually matches your, your chart? I was, uh, I was always amazed. <laughs> a simple it thing. Is. It is great. It, it's it's fascinating. Uh, geography. I love geography yeah, yeah. to the point where my kids hate me <laughs> every time they talk about something. I talk about where these places are. Um, it's it's funny. The other day, um, my nine year old is working in in social studies when they learn about land masses and things like that. And one of the questions is, you know, the borders of states. Can you see them from the air? And you know, they're like, well, no, you can't. But the reality is, is that between the United States and Canada. They maintain a an area, and I, I forget how wide it is. It's like 100 meters, something like that wide of just space. So they keep it clear. And you actually can see the border between the United States and Canada almost the entire length from east to west. Is that right? Can you really? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Who built that? Is that the Americans? No, I think it's both. I think it's right. – and I forget exactly. It, there was a TV show on recently that talked all about how the states were formed and things like that. It was fascinating, and they talked. They did talk about this thing, um, and you see things like that. Um, unfortunately, not as as good 
of a story, but fascinating is uh, I used to fly down in South America and regularly we'd go over uh, Hispaniola, which is Dominican Republic and Haiti. Yeah. And, and I don't know if it's like this anymore, but there was a point where Haiti was just so deforested. Um, but the Dominican public Republic was all forest. You can literally see the, the border between the two countries yeah. because one is just barren yes. and just, you know, dirt and clay. And the other was all trees. And then we, I think we discussed something like, uh, the Amazon, which, you know, when flying over the ocean, I mean, you, all you see is, you know, water as far as you can see flying over the Amazon rainforest when all you can see is trees and no cities and as far as you can see. Yeah. That, that was fascinating too. Th- those types of things that just, those are the experiences that I really love. You probably think that the earth is fairly crowded until you fly over the Amazon or northern Canada and you think there's plenty of room for all of us, really. <laughs> yeah. Well, anywhere, it, anywhere in the world, it, it seems, you know, there's a lot of people, but they're all kind of jammed in small little dots. Yeah. You know, so, you know, you have, you know, the the Londons and, and the Manchester and, 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 and um, Liverpool area. And so, but it, it, if you look at any country from space, they're all jammed into one little small spot. And if you get away from it, there's very little. Yep. Uh, the United States is definitely like that. You go out west, there's so little out there. Um, but yet there's still so many people. So do you actually fly at the moment? Anything at all? I haven't. I haven't flown. It. it I'm almost ashamed to say it's probably been nine years since I've been in an airplane. And uh, I, I don't feel a pressing you know, urge to do it right away. Um, but I, Because I've just literally been so busy that my time with the business has taken up fully but i'm you know i'm totally fulfilled i don't feel the need that i have to get out there and do that i'd like to like i said i'd like to get checked out in something that i really have very little experience in that would be fun uh helicopters i've had a little bit of taste of helicopters i'd love to get a, a rotorcraft rating that would be a lot of fun have you tried helicopters i you know i i've been up on a couple times uh and one particular that i got to fly was a um a uh, aerospatial Dauphine, which is a AS-365, I think is the designator. Yeah. And it's a twin turbine. Mm. It's got the ducted tail rotor. Mm. Um, and it was a friend of mine flew for a municipality in South Florida. And he took me up uh, on a flight when they had to do regular flights. And he asked me if I wanted to try it. And I did. And I took to it right away. Um, he even let me try to hover. And I got to a point where I could fairly hover. Uh, and it just, that fascinated me. Um, that and I'd love to do, I'd love fast, either really slow like a helicopter or really fast like a jet. Yeah. Um, and aerobatics. I've always had an interest in aerobatics. I've done some aerobatics. Have you tried what we call microlights, which I guess you call ultralights? Yeah, ultra. No, I haven't had the opportunity. I would have loved to. You know, another big thing out here, I'm not sure exactly what they're called. They're, they're essentially parachutes. Uh, they're powered parachutes. That looks pretty, pretty yeah, fun too. Yeah. Um, but ultralights, I would love to do uh, the microlights. It's um, you know the the Stearman experience that I talked about when we were recording is something that really sticks in my mind too. It was the first time I was ever in an airplane where it was just an open cockpit, and this was in Florida, and we were going up and down the coastline, and he he was showing me something. He climbed pretty rapidly. And it was really warm, and then he climbed rapidly, not very far, maybe 500, 600 feet, and I could feel the rush of cold air. And it was amazing. Mm. It was amazing being out there like that. I, I would love to do that. Um, the only thing, the only type of aviation I really have no interest in is balloons. Yep. It scares the daylights out of me. And gliders. I, gliders, to me, just seem like too much work. 
yeah. trying to find, trying to find lift. Yes. Um, I didn't ever really want to work that hard. Correct stuff. Okay, thank you very much, Kerry. Thank you, Steve. Kerry Robbins there. You can see all of the links that Kerry mentioned in the podcast on the Flying Podcast website. That is www.flyingpodcast.co.uk. Uh, have a try and download the iFly Weight and Balance app from iTunes. It has a couple of sample aircraft on there, as Kerry mentioned, uh, for you to play around with. And uh, it is fascinating just loading up your aircraft and seeing how the uh, centre of gravity moves around as you uh, adjust the uh, the loading and uh, the passengers. It's good fun on a rainy afternoon. Uh, don't forget you can help support the podcast by clicking on some of the links on the uh, the Flying Podcast website. Um, there's even a donate button on the homepage for those of you that would like to help in a more direct way. Well, that's it for another episode. If you have any good ideas, I would like to take part in an episode. Send me an email to steve at flyingpodcast.co.uk. And as ever, thanks for listening.